There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who return their shopping carts to the proper place, and there are those who leave them stranded in the parking lot. Listen, I, I, have, this, I have this theory, and that's that abandoned shopping carts are kind of like the sign of human depravity. You know, it's like, hey, it's easy. It's, it's, it's responsible to take your cart back, right, to the proper place. It shows love for your fellow shoppers and their vehicles, of course. But no, it's too, dim, too, too sinful. We're, we're just so jacked up. We're so messed up by nature that we can't, we can't even do that. In fact, I was, at, I was at Tom Thumb recently, the Tom Thumb on Bowen and Park Row around the corner. Some of you may go there. Our family does all the time. And uh, they have these weird shopping cart returns that are like these curbs that you, anyway, these little alleys. And there was a person who parked immediately next to this cart return. And then they take their cart and then like prop it up on the side of the curb. You guys have seen this, right? And they wouldn't walk like five feet to put it with the rest of the carts. It drives me crazy. So if anybody ever asks you, what is Carlos's biggest pet peeve? Now you know. Take your shopping carts back, please. <laughs> but why, why do people do this? Why does this happen? If you ask me, I think it's just because people are always trying to, to take the easiest way out. They always want to do the easiest thing. Now, before you think that I'm just here to judge the cart abandoners, know this. I do it too. I, I look for the easiest way out. I just do it in different ways. So like if I want to lose a few pounds, I, I start by one of these like three-day cleansing fasts. Have you guys, you guys seen this? Um, I do that, but the truth is about 36 hours in, I get so hangry that that I have to eat something just so my wife will let me live in the home with her and the five kids. It doesn't work. I just gained the weight back anyway. Or there was this one time when my wife and I, when we first got married, we moved to Colorado. We're about two weeks in, and so we decide to go on this romantic hike down this beautiful canyon in Colorado. And we get, we get to the hike, and you see uh, on the way down to this beautiful river, there's like this winding trail, you know, all the switchbacks that go to the bottom of the canyon. And we see that. We start the hike. But then... I see a different trail. I see an unmarked trail that bypasses all the switchbacks. It goes right down to the bottom of the canyon. And so against her better judgment, Lydia said, okay, let's, let's go down this, uh, let's go down this, this path. And uh, as we start going down, there's a reason it was unmarked, of course, because about halfway down, it's just covered in ice. And Lydia's walking in front of me. Me, the clumsy one, of course, I slip, kick my legs out in front of me, knock her down, She's bruised all up and down her back. I don't know if she broke her tailbone or what. I sprained my ankle. We end up limping our way out of the canyon that day. And to this day, I get yelled at every time a picture of that hiking adventure comes up on Facebook memories. <laughs> Why did that happen? Because I was trying to take the easy way out. Listen, I know these are, these are silly examples, of course, but th there's a reason I bring these up. And that's because I think there's a tendency for many of us to look at our spiritual lives in a similar way. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I want the easy way. I want to take the easy way out. Yes, I want growth. Yes, transformation. Power from the Holy Spirit. Sign me up for that. That sounds great. But the truth is I want the way of least resistance to get to those things. I want those things with minimal to no suffering or minimal to no sacrifice. And there's a big problem with that. Here it is. It's this book. Because whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're here in the room or watching online, let me tell you this. If you read this book with any level of intellectual honesty, here's what you're going to find. You're going to see suffering. You're going to see death. 
You're going to see sacrifice. You're going to see mourning. You're going to see the, the devastating consequences that sin has on individuals, on their families, on nations, and on entire cultures. And because of that sin, it must be judged because God is holy, because he's just. There is no easy way out to deal with this. And so when we get to the New Testament, here's what we see. God sends his one and only son because he loves us so much. And he sends that son to become flesh, to enter into the suffering with us and for us, and to go to the cross, to take the punishment that you and I deserve and raise again so that those of us who have faith in him could be restored and could have eternal life. That's the story of this book. That's the message of the gospel. But there's a question that, that may come up when you think about that. This question might come up if uh, you're newer to the faith or maybe you're exploring Christianity currently. And if, if that's you, one, I'm glad you're in the room or I'm glad you're watching online right now. But I think that many of us who have believed in Jesus, I think we have this, this same question. And here it is. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did it have to be so hard? If, if God is really God and he's all-powerful, couldn't he have just found an easier way? Or here's another spin on this question. Why is it that Christians seem so fixated on this idea of suffering? D did God really have to send his own son to to go to the cross, to suffer, to be humiliated in order to save humanity? Couldn't there have been a different way? In, in Luke chapter 9, the, the same passage that we read from last week, Luke 9, 22, Jesus says this. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day. It must happen. Jesus acknowledged that. Or think about this. We're, we're currently practicing this, this season of Lent, and this is a season for us to focus on the suffering of Christ, on our own suffering, to, to confess sin. And let's be honest, that's kind of weird. Like, that's odd, isn't it? Like, take all this time to focus on these, these difficult things and, and topics. Why would we do that? Well, if you've ever had those types of questions, I actually want to honor that this morning. Because I think the question of Jesus' suffering is a great question. In fact, the Bible clearly addresses this. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context as we're jumping right into the middle of this book. Uh, the book of Romans is the longest of the letters that, that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. And he's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Rome, and some are Jewish, some are Gentile Christians, they're having conflict with one another. And so what Paul does is he writes this beautifully dense theological treaty in order to show them that, that their unity comes in these foundational truths about who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, he explains how all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've turned good things into God things, and that is sin. At the root of all sin is idolatry and treason. In chapter 3, he tells us that all have sinned. Everybody has done this, and they have fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is just, he has to judge that sin, or else he would... He would be operating inconsistently with his character. There is no easy way out. 
Some people, of course, try to find an easy way out, particularly the, the Jewish contingency that Paul is writing to here. They try to find an easier way to deal with their sin by obeying rules, by following the law. And so in chapter 4, Paul reminds them that Abraham, a hero of the faith, he was not saved by adherence to the law or rules. He was saved by faith because the law hadn't even been given to Abraham yet. And just as Abraham was saved by faith, it's the same for all people in all time, no matter the culture, no matter the timetable, everyone is saved through faith. And with that, in Paul's thought process and ours, he picks up in chapter 5, of course, with the word, therefore. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is an incredibly powerful passage, of course. In fact, I think we could probably do a sermon on each one of these verses, but I want to use this passage because I think it, it shows us really four ways, four reasons why Jesus had to suffer. Here, here's the first one. Jesus had to suffer to fix our legal standing before the Father. He had to suffer to fix our legal standing before the Father. Read verse 1 and 2 again. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word justified here means that because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we can obtain a right legal status before the Father. The, the idea behind justification is, is like a judge, and when the judge bangs his gavel down on the table, he declares, not guilty, you are free. That because of sin, we've been separated from God, but for those who have been justified, they have peace with God. It also says they have access to his grace. Now, now the peace of God that, that this verse is talking about is not subjective. It's not a feeling. It's not that I feel like I have peace with God. No, peace with God is an objective reality for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. You've been brought near. You have a, a new legal status. So why is it that this could take place? It tells us that this, this justification happens by faith. Remember, in chapter 4, Paul was describing how Abraham was justified through faith, by faith, and it's the same for everybody. That this doesn't happen from good works, it doesn't happen from right moral living or ethical practices or religious activities, no. 
We are made right with our creator when we place our faith, when we trust and, have comp- and, and believe in what he did for us on the cross. But there's another question with that, and that is, okay, so there's, there's this justification, there's, there's we can be made right and have a, a new legal status with God. Why did that require Jesus' suffering? Listen to this. This is important. If our sin is treason against an eternal God, then it deserves an eternal punishment. And so God sent his eternal son to take the punishment in our place. Listen, Jesus was the only one who was able to satisfy the judgment or the wrath of God. Jesus is the only one who could do it. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's he's the very son of God. He's the only one who could pay the debt that you and I owe, and he did it willingly. He suffered, he died, his blood was shed. Why? So that we could come into a new relationship with God, so we could have a new objective peace with our Father. But there's another reason why he had to suffer, and that is so that we could restore our relational position with the Father, our relational position. That's what reconciliation is all about. If you look at verses 9 through 11, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Justification and reconciliation are really two sides of the same coin. In justifying us, Jesus secured our legal position with the Father, and in reconciliation, he restores our relational position with the Father. And so if if justification is like God the judge banging down the gavel and declaring us not guilty, reconciliation is in that same judge immediately saying, now come with me, we got a party to get to. Isn't that beautiful? The judge is now a friend. What kind of friend is this? What kind of God is this that he would welcome us into his family, that he would have this type of relationship with us? How how could that even be possible? Well, it's possible because of this, this little phrase in this verse, which I love, where it says that we are saved by his life. We're saved by his life. That because Jesus died, he paid the debt that we owed. He took the punishment that we really deserved. But in living his life, in living life perfectly, and then in raising again from the dead, here's what he does. He gives us his righteousness. He says, I I earned it. I lived life perfectly according to the law. And then for those who have placed their faith in him, he clothes us with his righteousness because of his life. And so if, if God is holy, if God is just, if he can have no sin in his presence, we can't be there. But for those who have faith, they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So now I get to be in the presence of my creator. Now I get to sit at the banquet table. I'm invited to the party. I'm reconciled. I have a new relationship with my father, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. There's a, there's a beautiful picture that we have of reconciliation in the Bible. It's the story of the prodigal son. You guys have likely heard this before, but there's a, there's a son. He essentially wishes that his father was, was dead. He says, give me my inheritance early. 
And so he takes that money, he goes off to a far away land, and he just spends all the money living it up uh, for himself, gambles it away. He, he hits rock bottom. He loses all his money. It gets so bad, in fact, that we're told that he's out in the slums with the pigs eating their slop. And it's in this deep and dark place that the son repents. He, he turns. He comes to his senses, and he realizes it would be better for me to to be back as a servant in my father's house than to be in the position that I'm in right now. And so he, he starts his journey home. And I can only imagine as he's walking home with his, with his head held low, I'm sure smelling like alcohol, pig slop, and regret. The father just, he sees him away in a distance, and we're told that the father runs towards him. And he runs towards him not to judge him, He doesn't run off to him to condemn him. He doesn't say, son, I told you so. You shouldn't have done that. No, that's not what he does. What does he do? He opens his arm and he embraces him. He gives him a kiss. He says, welcome home. But look at this, that same story. Something amazing happens. The father gives the son a robe to wear. And he takes a ring and he places it on his finger. The father clothes the son in his very clothes and then says, hey, let's go party it up. We got a banquet to get to. Come with me. Jesus did that for us. Jesus did that for us. If you have faith in Christ or if you're ready to place your faith in Christ, the Father is standing there with his arms open wide. He's not here to condemn you this morning. He's not here to say, I told you so, you screwed it up. No, he wants to give you a hug. He wants to clothe you with his clothes. He wants to clothe you with his righteousness so that you can be in his presence forever in celebration. He wants to invite you to the party. Would you come? Come with us. We can be reconciled this morning to our Father because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But there's another reason for his suffering. This passage shows us that Jesus had to suffer to to show us what love looks like. He had to show us what love really looks like. We see that in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person... Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My two-year-old, Roman, loves the movie Frozen right now. One and two. We watch them almost every day. I kid you not, we watched Frozen this morning. <laughs> uh, he calls them the Let It Go movie off the, you know, the famous song. And uh, at the climax of the first movie... I'm going to ruin this for you, but listen, it's your fault. It's an old movie now. But at the climax of the first movie, uh, there's this prince who has betrayed Anna and Elsa, and he wants to take the kingdom for himself. And so he takes a a sword, and he comes at Queen Elsa with the sword to kill her. But Anna, she jumps in front, and she, she blocks the sword from hitting her sister, and she sacrifices herself for the sake of her sister. And in the process, she's completely frozen. But... Because of her sacrifice, because of this love, she's unfrozen. The sword breaks. She's reconciled with everybody. The kingdom is restored, and there's happily ever after. Because only an act of true love can melt a frozen heart. Listen, (laughs) I've seen this movie too many times, okay? I've seen it too many times. And listen, it's a great movie. It's a good story. It, it's even a good lesson about love and sacrifice. But, but, but hear me out. There is a difference between frozen and the gospel. Because Jesus did not sacrifice for the one that was good. Jesus sacrificed for the one that was wielding the sword. 
Because the truth is, you and I, we've come at our Savior with a sword. We've said, I want the kingdom for myself. I want to sit on the throne. I want to be in charge. I'm going to go find my significance and my satisfaction and my identity in anything but Jesus. I'm going to find my hope anywhere else. These other things provide more for me than you do, so I'm I'm just going to do me. And that deserves punishment. We've committed treason. We've committed idolatry. But because Jesus loved us so much, he jumped in front and he absorbed the wrath of God that I deserve. He took our punishment in our place. He did that. And in the process, he showed us what love really looks like. It says that. It says he showed his love in this. Or in the NIV, the version that I memorized as a kid, it says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. And this word in the original Greek, it has this idea of he presented to or he introduced us to love. I think that's beautiful. In dying for the sake of sinners, in dying on behalf of his enemies, Jesus modeled what love really is. We don't learn about love from a song We don't learn about love from a movie. We don't learn about love from pop psychology. We learn about love by seeing what Jesus did for us on the cross. He showed it to us. He introduced us to the very idea of love. That means we have a new model for the way that we treat the people around us. Because if Jesus sacrificed for the enemies, it means I now have a new way to treat those who betray me. If Jesus suffered and died for those who don't deserve it, It means that I have a different way of treating my kids when they continually disobey or drive me crazy. If Jesus died for the sake of sinners, my kids have a different way of treating me when I go crazy or do something that I shouldn't. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now have a model for how to love our enemies. Jesus gave us a whole new idea and a concept of love. What does love look like? It looks like sacrifice for those who don't deserve it. Finally, Jesus had to suffer so that we could have hope in our own suffering. So that we could have hope in our own suffering. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can have hope in our sufferings. We can have, we can even rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because of what it produces. When Jesus suffered on the cross, it produced salvation for all who would place their faith in him. When Jesus suffered on the cross, it tells us that the veil in the temple was torn and it produced access to the very presence of God. When Jesus suffered on the cross, the enemy thought he had won, but Jesus produced the victory. Suffering can produce something for those that are in Jesus. And make no mistake about it, suffering is coming. If you're not experiencing a pain right now, if you're not experiencing some level of suffering, I could make you this promise according to Scripture, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. In fact, if you place your faith in Jesus, you actually invite a level of difficulty and suffering into your life. 
Last week, Jason talked about this. In, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus calls his very disciples to pick up their cross, to pick up their instrument of death daily and to follow him. That we invite sacrifice and difficulty into our lives. But for those who are in Christ, our suffering is not pointless. Our suffering has purpose. Our suffering produces something. It actually says that it produces three things in this passage. It produces endurance, it produces character, and it produces hope. And, and we need this endurance, don't we? Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like this world just has a way of grinding us down day after day. And I love how uh, James says that. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This steadfastness, this endurance is the ability to patiently wait on something. That we're waiting for something, that we're enduring, that we're keeping the faith even when it seems most difficult, even when it's dark. And uh, this endurance is it's kind of like working out your spiritual muscles. When you when you work out or you go to the gym, what's really happening as you lift weights is you're breaking your muscles. You're tearing them. And as you tear them, they, they heal and they grow back a little bit stronger. Then you go back again and it tears and it grows back a little bit stronger. So when we go through suffering as a follower of Jesus, what's happening is we're, we're building up our spiritual endurance muscles. So that next time the world has something to throw at this, I'm a little bit stronger. I'm a little bit more ready. And what's happening in that process is that it's producing character. That all character is is becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's not easy either. It's not easy to follow Christ. I love how Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. That every day, day after day, as I'm going through pain, as I'm going through suffering, as I invite sacrifice and even a level of suffering into my life, and I do that over and over again, little by little, when people are looking and when they're not looking, I'm becoming a little more and a little more and a little more like Jesus. That we're developing this, this character, and suffering and sacrifice have a unique way of doing that. When you get up early in the morning and you sacrifice sleep to spend time in the Word and prayer, what's happening? You're developing character. When you, when you come to church to worship when you don't feel like it, you're, you're probably developing character. It means you're in the right place. When you go to your biblical community and you have awkward and difficult conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ, what's happening? You're developing character. You know when you give out of your abundance and your overflow, it's nice, it's even appreciated. But listen, it does not develop character in you the same way as giving to the point of sacrifice does. When you, when you fast, when you give something up for a season, even if it's a good thing, so that you can focus on confession of your sin and your eyes on the suffering of Christ, what's happening? You're developing character. And when you're developing that character, when you become more and more like Jesus, it's easier to remember the hope that you have in him. You become more like Jesus, and you're reminded of his hope. And it tells us what this hope is. It says in verse 2 that it's the hope of the glory of God. That one day I'm going to receive a new glorified body. Listen, our hope in Jesus is that the suffering will end. The hope that we have in Jesus is that there is one day where the tears will be no more. Amen. There is one day when the relationships that are broken right now won't be broken anymore for those who have faith in Christ. That one day we'll be given a new resurrected body. Yeah. That we'll be, have entrance into a new heaven and into a new earth. 
And why do we have that guarantee? Why do we have hope there? It's because Jesus was resurrected. He came up from the grave. He didn't stay in his suffering. He didn't stay in the ground. He came up. He ascended. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he tells us we have that hope too. No matter what you're going through. And even better, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He says, listen, I've given you, I've given you my spirit. And the spirit is going to guide you. So that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how bad your financial situation is, no matter how much it seems like your sin is just wrecking your life, when it's deepest and darkest, for those who follow Christ, have a guide inside of them to point them, to say, look forward. Look forward to the hope that you have in Jesus. Look forward to the resurrection. Look forward to the hope of the glory of God. Listen, we, we can rejoice in our suffering, not because it's pleasant, but because it produces transformation. Some of you this morning, you might be struggling to get to the rejoicing part of whatever you're, you're dealing with right now because you've been minimizing your suffering. For some of you sitting here or maybe some of you watching online, you know you know that you have pain right now. You're dealing with a sickness. You're dealing with a disease. You're dealing with sin in your life. You're dealing with a relational issue or a financial issue. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but here's, here's what you do in your head. You've been saying, you know what? I don't need to talk to somebody about that. I don't really need to pray about that because somebody else has it worse. I don't really need to go up front and receive prayer from a brother and sister in Christ because the other people need it more than I do, so I'm gonna give them room to go do it. You see how we do this? I, I'm not going to really mourn. I'm not really going to fully lament the pain and the suffering that I'm experiencing because in the grand scheme of the world, it, it doesn't really matter that much. But listen, when we minimize our suffering, we also minimize the very suffering of Jesus because Jesus came and he suffered and he died and he rose again so that you could have hope in it. But, but you're not going to be able to get to that hope and to that rejoicing until you lay it at the foot of the cross and you give it to Jesus. And you let your brothers and sisters in Christ wrap around you. Because this people, your, your community group, your D group, the people in this room, we're filled by the Holy Spirit and he's given us each other to carry the load with one another. And Jesus himself, he's, he takes the yoke upon him. He doesn't want you to sit there and just grind it out by yourself. He wants, to he wants you to have hope in that suffering. He wants to give you joy in that, but you need to bring it to him and be honest with it. To sit there and to not address what you're going through is to try to find the easy way out. I'm going to find my way out of this by just ignoring my sin. I'm going to get my way out of this by just ignoring my suffering, and I'm just going to suffer in isolation. But there's hope that's offered to you if you would bring it to him. That's why when you come to, to the steps of the altar as we sing later and we do that here every week and you, you kneel down, it can be an act of worship. It is an act of worship. When you take your suffering to Jesus, you're worshiping because what you're doing is you're saying, God, as I'm, as I'm here, I'm struggling with this thing and it's, it's terrible, Jesus, and I, I know this pain that I experience, but, but Jesus, I remember that, that you suffered too. Jesus, I remember that, that you were unjustly sentenced. Lord, I remember that, 
that you were made to carry your own cross on your back. I remember that you, were, that you were beaten and that you bled. I remember that you were made to step closer and closer to your very place of death. I remember that they, they pierced the nails in your hands and your feet. I remember that they, they stabbed your side. And Lord, I remember the worst suffering of all is that you took my sin. You took the sin of the whole world and you put that on yourself. And you experienced judgment from your own father. Lord, you, you suffered so much on my behalf. Would you, would you take my suffering? But, Jesus, you didn't stay dead. You rose again. And so I'm going to rise. I'm going to hold my head up. I'm going to have hope and I'm going to receive the joy that you offer to me. Because you rose again. Because you are seated at the right hand of God. I receive your joy. I receive your hope. Would you bring your suffering to him this morning? Would you bring your pain? This is the place to do that. Don't leave here without doing that today. Don't leave here without receiving prayer from a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus wants you to experience restoration. He wants you to experience the joy. He wants you to experience the hope if you would just lay it at his feet. For others of you here in the room or, or, or watching online, the step that you need to take today is to place your faith in Jesus. It's time. It's time to stop trying to take the easy way out. It's time to stop ignoring it. It's, it's time to stop saying, next week. Jesus loves you. He's ready to receive you into his family. He has his arms open wide. He's inviting you to the party. He's, he's inviting you to the peace and to the hope. If you would come, place your faith in Jesus. I love how we've been doing baptism at the end of every service. And if you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, you can be baptized today. We make sure that there is nothing standing in your way in order to be baptized. And here's a great thing about baptism. When you go under the water, guess what? We don't hold you under the water. Why is that? Well, obvious reasons. But there's another reason. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. We bring you up out of the water. When you're baptized, you, you identify with the death of Jesus. You identify with the suffering that he experienced. But then you come out as Jesus rose again from the dead. I come up. I raise again. I have a new life. I'm going to receive a new resurrected body because Jesus did. And I'm going to display to the entire world that my hope is not in me or what I do. My hope is on what Jesus did for me. And baptism is a picture of that. So come today, receive, receive the hope that Jesus is offering to you and display that to the world. I, I love that the application that Paul gives us in this passage. He tells us one thing that we are to do, and he tells it to us three times. Maybe you caught this. He tells us to rejoice. Look at this, verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then immediately in verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. And then again, in verse 11, he says, we also rejoice because of this reconciliation that we received. I love this. He's like, rejoice. But not only that, rejoice. Even more than that, you should rejoice. It's like as Paul keeps talking about peace with God and the hope that we have in him, he just ups the ante on joy. 
And so you heard from Jason earlier, we, we did the service a little bit differently, and we're going we're gonna to sing a couple more songs with the, with the band still, and here's why. We're going to give you ample opportunity to rejoice this morning. You're going to have time to rejoice this morning. In fact, I would actually encourage you to use your physical body as an act of worship as we sing these next few songs. If we say that we rejoice, that means we're going to sing loudly. If we say that we're going to bring our suffering and our pain and our sin to Jesus, then I would, I would challenge you to get low. I would challenge you to come to the altar and to kneel down or go into the aisle and kneel or in front of your seat or go against the wall and kneel down because in getting low, what you're doing with your body is you're, you're making a declaration of saying, Lord, I am humbled, I'm in this place of pain and suffering and I'm giving it to you. But then after you sing a little bit, after you, you give that to Jesus in this place of humility, then I encourage you to get up, to lift your head to stand up tall, to sing even louder, to lift your hands in the air because there is no hope like the hope that we have in Jesus. And so we can rejoice. We can jump up and down. We can get undignified because he gives us the hope. We can have hope this morning. We can rejoice because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We can rejoice because Jesus did not take the easy way out. Dear Heavenly Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of all the honor. You are worthy of all the praise. You are holy. You are just. God, I am so broken before you. My sin separated, separated me from you. God, I've tried to find everything and all my hope and things other than you, but you open your arms wide. You're inviting me into your home. You're inviting me to the party. Thank you. Thank you for taking the punishment that, that we deserve. Thank you for raising again so I could have hope. Lord Jesus, I know that there are people in this room right now that are struggling. They have a pain that they're experiencing. They have a sickness or a disease that they're dealing with. They have, a, they have a sin issue that seems to be wrecking their life that they can't give over. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them and move in their heart right now, that they would receive your hope, not because of the words that I say, but they would receive the hope that originates from your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you move us to respond in the way that you call us to respond in this moment? Lord, for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, would you move them to faith this morning? For those who have not been baptized yet, would you move them to display to the world the hope that we have in your death and in your resurrection? Lord, would you continue to mold this people into yours? Would this be a place where we're not isolated, where we, not, where we don't struggle alone in our, our fear and our insecurity and our mental health issues and our suffering and our pain? Lord, would you use this body to wrap around each other and to be the very arms of Jesus to one another? Would you make this that kind of people? Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in you. Open our mouth to sing of your praise. Would you accept our, our posture that we take right now? Would you accept our words as a fragrant offering unto yourself? Because King Jesus, you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.